This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO Wisdom Tree. I'm joined by my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor and Senior Economist for Wisdom Tree, Jeremy Siegel. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services, and our discussion is not tied to the offers of any investment products. Uh, we're going to have a very interesting show. I'm actually broadcasting not from Wharton's campus, but live from our SiriusXM's headquarters in New York. Uh, was here for, for some conferences, and, and we're going to get to broadcast from our, our headquarters here. we got Professor Siegel, a lot of action, Professor. You've got the inflation, you've got the interest rates. Tell us your latest thoughts. Well, as if we didn't have enough uncertainties going forward, certainly uh, over the last week, uh, the uh, Hamas attack on Israel and uh, retaliation and uh, complications for which I don't know anybody has a crystal ball can see is an added one. Um, Despite the fact that the PPI and the CPI were perhaps a tad higher than um, expectations. Uh, my feeling is that um, the Fed is going to pass on November 1st. Uh, uh, there are just so many uncertainties that uh, the economy faces, not, not only what might happen in the Middle East, um, but Clearly, uh, the probabilities of a a real government shutdown uh, in the middle of November are are keep on rising as uh, uh, as the Republicans have difficulty in in finding a speaker. Um, uh, The auto strike uh, is worse, is getting worse than expected um, uh, in in the number of uh, plants that have uh, been struck and. And remember, the uh, when you talk about unemployment, you have to multiply by four or five the number of people out of work in the auto because that just filters down to all the suppliers. So that is another, uh, you know, uh, negative going forward. Plus, of course, you have, and many of the Fed officials have mentioned, uh, the big rise in rates. They've eased off a little bit um, uh, as there's been some flight to, to uh, treasuries with the geopolitical risk, but nonetheless, there has been a big increase in real interest rates, and this is undoubtedly going to affect housing. I mean, really, mortgage rates are just about at 8%. I'm um, very interested to see what happens with the uh, National Association of Home Builders data that we will get next week. It had gone down quite a bit in the previous two months. Um, uh, you know, I hear a lot of people saying that, you know, at 8% and what's going on is really putting a, a real slowdown on uh, that housing uh, market going forward. Um, uh, so uh, when, you, when you look at the, those, those risks, um, my feeling is, is that, uh, all, uh, that uh, the Fed can afford to wait another six weeks or seven weeks before making a decision on whether they want to increase or not. Uh, in the meantime, uh, again, as we keep on saying, I see no sign of a slowdown in the real economy. Jobless claims remained at an extremely low level. Next week, we will get retail sales, of course, um, which will be important to look at for the month of September. But um, when I look at estimates for what third quarter GDP is going to be like, which will come out in two weeks, um, we are we are north of 4% in terms of third quarter. Uh, Earnings are beginning to trickle in. um, Good earnings. I don't see a lot of, uh, you know, people talk about the risks, but I don't see any material downgrades in what earnings estimates are uh, for uh, the year or or for the quarter. Um, uh, The S&P is still looking at uh, 246 for next year, which puts the S&P index under 18 as a PE ratio, which I think is a pretty favorable ratio for 
for stocks. Um, I like stocks at the pr- present time. Um, uh, again, um, stocks are great long-term inflation hedges. So if that's something you're worried about, that's that's fine. They can always take another quarter point or so by by the Fed. Um, uh, in the meantime, um, uh, we're going to be entering into the quiet period. If Powell does not make an announcement that he is worried about the inflation. By the way, we did have uh, the University um, of Michigan Consumer Inflationary sentiment. They did jump, but they're not. They did not jump to new highs, and sentiment itself did go down. So, you know, when you when you take a look at the the whole picture, I don't. I just don't think there's enough. Uh, for Powell, especially again, where as every month goes on and every week goes on, we get closer and closer to uh, the political season and the sensitivity of, of going too far. Um, I think with all those uncertainties, uh, you don't want Powell. Powell doesn't want to be accused of pouring, uh, you know, having the, the straw that breaks the camel's back in terms of uh, adding to any downward movement that the um uh the economy might experience so um uh i like equities i like equities at the current level small stocks have definitely been hit i think you know a lot of that is recession fears a lot of that is tightening of lending a lot of that is fear of what what's going on in the in the lending industry by the small banks um uh tech still seems to do well relatively well although it's come down a bit because of uh, you know the 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 higher interest rates, but uh, I think we're poised for a year in that's going to look good, and I think we're poised for a 2024 that's going to look good for uh, the equity um, markets. Now, with all you mentioned, all the sort of uncertainty from this geopolitical travesty that we're we're facing with, how do you think? How do you? advise people think about that as as a risk just as risk in 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 the nature of these things and the uncertainty that sort of comes with it well first of all you know clearly uh, if there's a disruption in oil now one has to realize that from on the whole u.s is energy independent we ex we just about produce our needs now our mix is not exactly uh satisfies each of our needs so we import some we export others which means that a rise in, you know, energy prices actually, um, you know, uh, although it hurts the consumer, puts money in the pockets of the oil industry and the natural gas industry and other producers in a, in a way that neutralizes GDP dramatically from certainly the situation that existed, let's say, uh, 10 years ago when we were importing a huge percentage of our energy. So... Um, uh, uh, you know, is, is Iran going to expand? Is there going to be a problem with the Straits of Hormuz and, and, and all that? And, uh, uh, that, that, that is un, unforeseen, um, and certainly will have an effect on consumer confidence, but the effect of a rise in, in those energy prices on real GDP in the U.S. is a small fraction of what it was 20 years ago or 50 years ago, when the oil embargoes uh, really uh, lay waste to the U.S. economy and put them into a, a deep recession. Um, in, in terms of this, re- the, the the call for the recession keeps getting pushed back. If you had a sense of, just based on the other underlying trends, absent the geopolitics and things worsening there, it, it's, if you're if you're predicting a recession, when would you predict a recession? Well, the, I think you know, the recession would, you know, if you're going to predict it, it's hard to predict it two years hence. I mean, you're, you'll predict it for 2024. We just, I, I just don't see anything again in the data. I look at claims very, very low. Uh, we'll again get retail sales for, for the month of September a little bit lagged. Uh, you know, you, you take a look at other indicators. Yes, I do see bankruptcies go up. Yes, I do see a few things going up. They all talk about warning signs. But uh, really, in terms of, you know, we're getting through, listen, October was supposed to be the worst month. We're virtually halfway through. Then we get to the holiday season, uh, November and December. Uh, it was in seasonally good good times. So unless something really, you know, pushes 
pushes us to the brink geopolitically, another, you know, shocking type of event. You know, I don't see anything coming in in the near term that speaks to recession. Although I do hear people tell me, you know, that the data often looks good before it looks bad. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think those two-sided risks are something that are now built into the Fed and Powell, and he will be citing those two-sided risks in his press conference afterwards. This is going to be a, a non-dot plot meeting uh, as an intermediate meeting. Um, so there won't be any projections in terms of the future. I think what he will say is we, you know, there's there's more uncertainties. We're going to let it work, uh, you know, and we're going to assess the situation as an open meeting in December when much more data uh, will be available uh, for them to choose. Um, again, the inflation data is just not was not bad enough. Um, in my opinion, to offset the uncertainties that face the Federal Reserve. And we have our increase. We have our alt inflation numbers showing about 2% is right on target. When you use our shelter number of 2.6 instead of the official 7.2, it shows uh, if they're looking at some of these alternative metrics, you could say inflation's on track. Yeah. I mean, again, we, we, uh, we, we at Wisdom Tree have an alternative metric where we uh, use uh, current data on housing uh, rentals and case shower data on owner occupied to actually compute what the housing costs are, the shelter being the biggest single item in the CPI. And, um, you know, although it has, there's been some tick ups recently in home prices, there hasn't been in rental prices. And basically, uh, you know, it has come down from a year ago. So uh, on a current basis, we are there. But as you saw in the CPI, we had a six-tenths of an increase in shelter because of how lagged the shelter index is in the BLS computation of the rate of inflation. Very good, Professor. I know you've got some obligations today. Good to be with you, as always. And we'll, uh, thanks thank, for thank giving you us very a, much, and uh, we'll, we'll see you next week. Thanks, Professor. We're talking for for the rest of the show. We've got Samuel Rhines, who's a friend of the program. He's been a return guest, an economist. Corbu does a lot of really interesting research on the macro, but also geopolitics. Uh, we work on some model portfolios with Sam to try to execute some of the major themes of how they're looking at the world. Sam, welcome back to Behind the Markets. Hey, thank you for having me, Jeremy. So let you you heard a little bit of the professor's economic view. Um, uh, we'll talk about all all the stuff happening around the world today with you, but start off with what you heard from from Siegel. How do you react to the Fed to the the, the macro uh, from a very high level? I, I really think it's interesting because I don't disagree with him that the Fed is likely not going to move. Powell is going to cite those two sided risks that um, Professor Siegel spoke about. Uh, that's really where I think it gets very interesting as we move forward, uh, right? We're we're very much at Corvu of the idea that you probably don't have a, another rate hike in 2023, and it's really 2024 that gets interesting, right? We call it monetary policy volatility, MonPonVol for short. And the reason that we like that characterization of monetary policy, particularly at the current juncture, is that monetary policy is being driven by what I would describe as fairly volatile, read whatever you want into it, data. And that data is driving timing of cuts in 2024. It's pushing out rate hikes in 2023. There's a significant number of moving pieces all around these very uh, volatile economic data points. And so to the point on CPI, you could look at CPI, X shelter, energy, food, and it's sitting at 2%, right? Or you could look at core CPI and say, well, it's not decelerating as quickly as you want it to, right? There's, we call it the mind the gap issue, right? There's a significant gap between core inflation and some of the alternative metrics uh, that the Fed's probably okay with at this point. Inflation is decelerating somewhat meaningfully. But it's not necessarily decelerating as quickly as it would like on the core, more traditional metrics of inflation that likely leads it to at the FOMC and Federal Reserve to at least attempt to hold interest rates higher for longer. How 
How much that longer is, I think, is the real debate as we move into 2024. Now, one of the things that's been pushing up inflation recently, the last few months, has been just the the rising energy prices. You had this sort of downward tread on commodities. Now you've got the war and the uncertainty over that. And where's that go? And you got oil rising. What, you're based in Texas. You get a lot of views on energy, uh, and, and you and you had, wrote out a nice note today about the move in some of these markets. What, t- t- tell us a little bit about how you're thinking about oil today, the risk from the conflict, and the impact on inflation going forward. Yeah. So the way that we are approaching energy broadly, um, so energy as a broad complex, is if you told me, call it two years ago, that we would have a war in Europe a land war in Europe, and that we would have a significant conflict in the Middle East and that WTI would be 85 to $87, I would have been slightly confused on that front, right? I, I would have said that oil would have been significantly higher. And if you told me it was a land war between Russia and somebody, I would have for certain thought that oil would have been significantly higher. To the professor's point earlier, it's a much different energy market today than it was even two years ago. Uh, You have uh, the U.S., certainly energy overall, um, at least self-sufficient to a degree. And you have Europe, which was significantly at risk of a complete shutoff of natural gas from Russia, having very quickly pivoted towards LNG and other uh, forms of energy. Uh, that they could get very quickly from the United States, right? The U.S. is the world's largest producer of liquefied natural gas, um, and we've been shipping a tremendous amount of that to Europe. So that's that's really changed the energy landscape in a fairly meaningful way, right? Um, there's the ability to kind of rejigger the world in terms of where energy is heading when very, very quickly. And I think it surprised a number of investors just how quickly that happened, Uh, right? While you had the price cap coalition, uh, the uh, G7 plus a few other countries, uh, Australia, the United States, um, et cetera, uh, that tried to enforce a price cap on Russian crude um, that is somewhat successful, not overly successful in limiting the amount of revenues that Russia can gain from their energy. Uh, so they're, you know, Russia was producing about a little over 10 million barrels uh, for export, now exporting somewhere around 9 million barrels a day, maybe a little bit higher. It's obviously difficult to tell. Uh, but that price cap coalition was really what changed where oil would be sent. So now much of the Russian crude is going to India and China, and you have U.S. crude and call it non-Russian Saudi Middle Eastern crudes heading to uh, some to Asia, but uh, a lot of it has begun to move to other places. Uh, The Qataris and the Germans signed a significant LNG deal uh, so you've begun to see a re a reworking of the global energy system that I think is flying under the radar in a pretty meaningful way. And you know, one of the charts I saw going around Twitter today um, was the U.S. production, which you know, a lot, some people were saying, thinking that oil was going to go much higher, was that production wasn't going to be able to keep up, but that it keeps hitting these new highs and levels. Is there is there a sense from you on what those production levels are? Are they doing better as expected? Is that one thing that's keeping oil much less than you thought? It is, right? The The U.S. production numbers have been somewhat surprising. I wouldn't think they'd be as surprising to analysts as uh, apparently they have been. Uh, you know, part of it is that the U.S. rig count has fairly steadily declined over the last couple of months. Uh, You've seen fewer rigs being used to drill oil, and typically that's a sign that you're going to see oil production cap out, maybe not be as as high as anticipated. There's a little bit of a misconception about the productivity per rig out there, though. Uh, In 2010, the average well being drilled in the Permian was somewhere around 4,000 square feet or 4,000 feet. The Average well being drilled in the Permian today is almost three miles long. 
So there's a tremendous amount of productivity that's been put uh, into the Permian Basin, specifically uh, with the recent Exxon uh, deal. When they were, when the two companies were talking, it's going to allow Exxon stated it was going to allow them to drill wells at twenty thousand feet. That is a tremendous, tremendous gain in productivity per rig. So you're going to drill one 20,000-square-foot well that takes one rig when if you wanted that much uh, production and capability in 2010, it would have taken five. Mm. So I think there there really does need to be a little bit of a shift in mindset about how much of the oil patch is really a technological marvel and that you don't necessarily have to have the rigs that you did 15, 20 years ago. Now, they also, I listened to some of the interviews on the deal, and they talked about a cost of production of $35 a barrel, and you've got oil in the 80s. So does that say we've got a lot of downside potential in oil? Like, are they just going to pump production where they can because the cost is so low? Is that like one of the factors that go into your thinking about oil prices? So no, and this is this is something I think is critical: is that you're likely to see U.S. production remain at call it all-time high levels, but the rate of increase is going to slow uh, as we move forward. Uh, even if oil remains in the eighty to one hundred dollar a barrel type range, because we've told these companies for so long that they need to be capital efficient, right? We do not want them to drill, drill, drill and all of a sudden have their cash flows collapse, right? We would much prefer as investors that they methodically and carefully pump that $35 break-even crude, and it's probably, it's probably closer to 50, let's be honest, if not a little bit higher. Um, but we'd much rather have them pump that in a meticulous, capital-efficient way, return capital, whether that's through buybacks, whether that's through dividends, et cetera. We'd much rather have them return that cash to us, that cash flow, um, then just pump so much oil out of the ground that you have a collapse in prices. Uh, so I think you are going to see it become, and you have seen it become a much more capital efficient, uh, capital restrained uh, industry than it was previously, particularly uh, when you account for elevated oil prices. So we're uh, this is all pure speculation. And when you think about the the real the war that's going on in Israel and where it could go around the world. How, how do you handicap? How do you think about this? Well, you, you heard professors quick thoughts on it, but how, how do you think about this from a market's perspective and, and and think about how you manage models and how you think about just exposures today, given the the levels of risk and and we're so early in some of this this new conflict. Uh, so so we really think about it as. Uh, something to be tactical um, around, but really think about the longer-term structure of the market and the potential shifts there. Uh, we would see the Iran situation as something that's likely to be a headline grabber that will uh, knee-jerk energy prices higher if there were to be a expansion of the conflict within the Middle East. Uh, but really where the painful pinch points are you know, within the broader energy complex there um, is uh, LNG. Uh, Qatar and the United States are two of the largest producers and exporters of uh, liquefied natural gas. And that is an extremely important commodity for the U.S.'s Asian allies, but also the European allies as well. Um, and that has been a significant reason why uh, Germany and other countries have been able to really make up for the decline in Russian uh, Russian that gas. Uh, so I think that's really where we would see the pinch point. Uh, there's enough spare capacity within semi-friendly countries uh, to the U.S. to make up for any disruption with Iran, uh, specifically Saudi Arabia, uh, and some of the they have a significant amount of both spare capacity to pump out of the ground, but also have a significant amount in storage. Uh, China's energy uh, demands are likely to be lower than they were in the first half of the year. Uh, they purchased a significant amount of discounted Russian crude uh, that they uh, likely put into storage. There's no official figures on how much they put into storage, but there's likely to be a tremendous amount they put in storage at significantly discounted rates. 
Uh, so I would say that the disruption on the crude oil front is likely to be much less significant uh, than it would have been 20 years ago and far less significant than it would have been 50 years ago. Uh, and where the real disruption and something we're paying very close attention to is LNG. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we prefer to be exposed to U.S. friendly countries such as uh, Australia in terms of their ability and their LNG capacity. Uh, we think it'll be favorable to both U.S. LNG, but also Australia LNG in that case. Qatar is a very interesting discussion point now. I mean, and I'm just learning. I'm not. I can't say I'm the the expert. You guys are. Your team is 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 very much more focused on a lot of the geopolitics than than I do. But what I've been reading and, and hearing about, you've got this six billion dollars that we were giving to Iran that was in Qatar. The Qatar supposedly we are you know agreeing to freeze this six billion. The Qatar is not going to give it. But you also have Hamas leaders operating out of Qatar is what I understand. And so if that's accurate and we think Israel is not going to go after them there, I mean, that seems like a, that would be a surprise if they didn't go after them there. And so this seems like a very real problem. And and given all your points about Qatar's role in LNG supplies, that feels like much more risk uh, ahead there. That, yes, there's there's much more risk on that side than there than there is, I would say, even with Iran. Right. Um, when the when Hamas and the, uh, and Palestinian leadership sent their letter to South Africa um, yesterday, uh, thanking them for their solidarity, it came from Doha. Right. That's that's, you know, somewhat problematic in terms of both for the South African uh, government, but also for uh, Qatar in general. I think it was a shock to some people that really weren't. Uh, aware of the ties there, not just how tight they were. So all right, let's let's um, step back from this conflict. As, as, you know, the other big geopolitical dynamic. You guys talk a lot about China and and the the worries there, uh, and it's all overall connected in some ways. But how, how do you think the Russia China Taiwan? Where is it all going? At you know, the, the, there's been some sense bullish and bearish on the relations with China. What's your current status on those discussions? There's there's likely to be, our view is that there's likely to be a short-term thawing of relationship of the U.S.-China relationship as we move through the remainder of 2023. However, uh, as you approach uh, 24, I, we do think that the risks are going to escalate somewhat significantly around the Taiwan election. And I wouldn't say anti-China, but heavily pro-independent Taiwan candidates potentially winning. Um, that is that is where we think the thawing goes straight to ice, um, potentially, and we're paying very close attention to that. Uh, but we have been seeing... Uh, some signs of thawing in the U.S.-China relationship, whether it was the visit that Schumer had uh, this week, uh, whether uh, it's the attendance of China to the APEC meeting that's in San Francisco later this year, we think those are very, very significant signals. Uh, if Xi Jinping comes to uh, San Francisco for the meeting, that should be a very positive sign for markets as we head through the end of 2023. But again, that is heavily contingent on what happens with the Taiwanese elections in uh, early 24. So we're paying very close attention, not only to the dynamics now, which could be kind of a head fake in terms of the longer term US-China relationship, uh, and we don't necessarily think that you need to take direct China exposure in order to uh, be exposed. Again, uh, I would say that the recent conflict in the Middle East has furthered our view that you really need to have your international allocations uh, be with allies. Um, and that if you want China beta for any reopening, any positivity, you can likely find it elsewhere. You don't need to have the direct China exposure, uh, whether that is through uh, emerging markets ex-China or whether that's through 
uh, developed markets and uh, that are more heavily weighted towards materials and energy generally. Yeah, that's interesting views there. And in terms of the, in, in some of those dynamics with the ex-China thinking, you know, the, we, we talked a lot about the geopolitics there, but in terms of the economy, you know, I, I saw some signs that they, they had 0% inflation. We're talking about inflationary pressures here. I think their latest data was like zero inflation. And the only time they've had zero inflation was like recessions. Is And, and you've got this, the dynamic in their real estate sector where it's just like ground to a halt and they've got all these issues and and, and lasting issues it like are they not paying their bond payments it, it doesn't seem there's gonna be some a number of 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 real problems in their real estate sector is any views on actually their economy and and how that's developing uh, certainly uh, their their real estate sector is in like you know is in a recession and has been in a recession and will continue to be in a recession for the foreseeable future i mean that is that is that is problematic in general where we are far more concerned is in the wealth management products that are tied to that real estate and the inability to uh pay back those wealth management products which are a significant uh portion and method of saving for chinese households um we're I would say we're almost more concerned about the flow through effects of the wealth management products than we are of China real estate in and of itself, uh, mostly because that affects the consumer sentiment and consumer spending and the ability, really the ability of the Chinese economy to significantly stimulate itself coming out of COVID. Uh, we think that that's going to continue to be a headwind as we move forward. And until we see something that convinces us otherwise in terms of either a stimulus or a lack of Taiwan saber rattling, uh, we're, we're going to be fairly pessimistic on the ability of the Chinese economy to really accelerate from here. I want to come back to how you how we open with your Monpal Vol, your monetary policy volatility framework, and how you think about rates. I mean, it, the there's so much discussion about the competition stocks face from rising yields and where the yields are. Are you a buyer of this sort of ten year long bond? Do you think the yields are high enough at this moment in time? I mean, the yields aren't high enough to tempt me there when I can get a better yield on the short end. Right. You, you really have to be giving me more juice on the long end to, to make it really interesting for me. You know, critically, you know, we're not we're not trying to whip around trading our uh, fixed income portfolio and bond allocation. What we're trying what we're really interested in is that we call it two to five year type uh, duration. Uh, we really like the short end of the curve, partly because we think the Fed is pretty close to done. Right. Maybe you have another 25. Probably you don't. Uh, and then you begin to have a much more interesting dynamic potential curve steepening, et cetera, that could make the long end far more interesting. Uh, also, uh, we think you get a little bit better juice on the short end of the curve uh, if you're if you think about how quickly the Fed would have to cut in the type of extreme economic scenario. Uh, so we think that Maintaining that two to five year type duration at the moment is probably the best place to be. Uh, you know, maybe shorter is better, but I would say that two to five is kind of the sweet spot at the moment uh, for us, at least. And as we begin to move through 2024, the longer end of the curve, uh, call it with the 10 and 30 years sitting between five and 525 would be very attractive. You know, your partner, Renee, is, is, has, some, has been publishing also on his views on the where rates settle. As, as you think about the dynamics with productivity for the economy, that's one of the things that's been very positive for this year. You think about the long-term potential for where rates could end up. Is, is there a level that you, you think that is the... the I guess I, you know, we talk a lot about the long-term real rates, what is a fair long-term real rate, what's really attractive long run, and then the sort of short-run impulse. How do you think about both of those dynamics, about the, where the, the long-term rates settle, and then what where could they spike to in this sort of current move higher? 
that's well that that's a fun question um <laughs> with with absolutely nothing to pull apart there um yeah. we'll start with productivity and go from there because we do we do think that productivity is a very important part of the puzzle today uh, we have a theme re-regionalization that we have had from day one of the firm, which is that you are seeing uh, supply chains uh, need to normalize back towards where their end markets are predominantly, uh, whether it's you know semiconductors, autos, uh, all of it will need to become much more re-regionalized. What that means to us is a lot more automation and much higher productivity uh, coming out of the U.S. over time, right? It is not going to be something that you just snap your fingers and you see much higher productivity. Uh, we think you're going to see, particularly after the UAW strikes, after uh, COVID, uh, that these are significant tailwinds uh, towards making much higher marginal products in the U.S. And by higher marginal products, what we mean is higher margin products. And so each unit of hourly work is going to be worth much more on the bottom line. So you might not see, you know, you might see the smaller uh, Chevy, Ford, and Stellantis vehicles being made in Canada and Mexico, and the much higher margin SUVs and trucks made in the United States, right? You're not going to see as much lower productivity uh, production in the U.S., you're going to see a significant shift towards much higher productivity um, per hour tasks. Uh, where does that put the longer term rate? I think that that's really the difficult question to answer to a large extent because there's two things. One, what is the longer term neutral rate? I think there's a lot of debate about where that could land on a real basis you should probably be in the mid twos, which puts your nominal somewhere in the mid four, right? Assuming that your long-term inflation rate is, you know, there. Um, so real, call it two and a half, and nominal four and a half, I think would be a reasonable expectation for the long end of the curve over a longer period of time. Um, how far could it shoot up here? Um, I think you could see it shoot somewhat significantly uh, higher, call it five and a half uh, to 6%, uh, simply because you have some odd dynamics at play, which is you have relatively persistent inflation pressures emanating from portions of the economy. Uh, you have wage gains that are relatively persistent, and you have a Federal Reserve that's likely to pause and may be taken as overly dovish as we move into 24, which pushes up longer-term inflation expectations. And you could see an overshoot on the long end. Uh, so again, that's part of the reason why uh, we like to maintain that shorter end of the curve uh, exposure for now. And we'll be looking to shift duration longer as we move into 2024. Interesting. Um, that yeah, that's a tough question, right? So that's uh, only coming to you with the toughest question. If you said the risks on the long end, you, you know, you heard in in today's bank report, you got very good bank earnings, or people responded well to these bank earnings. You have Jamie Dimon saying people still don't really know the ongoing effects of quantitative tightening. That you got less, a lot less liquidity uh, coming, and and with a lot less ability to make markets, and you've got these big talks about deficits are those i mean those, those seem like also pressures on higher rates in, in the short run uh, yes those are all those are all pressures on the long end but they're relatively short um in terms of their potential effects right you're likely to see lower deficits moving forward than we have in the past um so that's likely to begin to roll off in terms of uh, one of the major risks that people cite. You know, the stock of debt will always be cited as something that is potentially problematic, uh, but you're unlikely to see the current, at least the current headline deficits maintained. Uh, I would say the real potential hiccups come with you know, the headlines coming out of UAE contract, UAW, contract negotiations, I think those could be 
relatively meaningful with some extrapolation into what that means for wages in coming years. I think that will be overdone generally, but that that's a potential catalyst as well for higher yields and on the inflation expectation front, risk front. There's the potential increasing by the day um, that you have a government shutdown as we move in through November. Um, I would say that's a relatively short time frame that it's likely to be affected, but could um, also lead to lower deficits. So it's a potential uh, tail risk for yields to move higher, but also a potential tail risk for yields to move lower over <laughs> the longer run. So I think it's it's kind of a two-sided uh, beast there. Uh, so it, it, to your point, I think there are a lot of these headline risks as we move through the back of the year. Uh, but again, as you move into 2024, a lot of those risks begin to become um, much less. A, a lot, you know, the, the narrative I hear a lot of is, well, we're going to have to pay all this higher interest costs on our debt and we got to refinance like 30% of our debt next year and sort of deficits are exploding forever. So what's the case that deficits are coming down? The deficits are coming down. I, I wouldn't say the deficits are going to dramatically decrease, but the key is that most of the U.S. debt is financed short term, right? It's it's not longer term debt, it's shorter term debt. Um and the chances of higher for longer lasting for much more than a year is relatively low, right? And so if you begin to migrate the path of interest rates back towards two to two and a half percent, it, it dramatically changes the picture of interest costs, right? And when this you know thirty percent is financed short, uh, that thirty percent is going to reset lower very very quickly. Uh, so if you think, you know, call it. Two and a half is the is what the Fed expects their longer run rate to be. Uh, if you think of that as kind of a long end for four and a half, as we discussed earlier, you know that's you know that's not the worst case scenario for interest payments. Sure. Let, let's talk a little bit about your th you, in in some of your writing. You one of your you became very popular as a price over volume inflationary story, uh, and you started talking about PAM as a new acronym. How's the POV to PAM narrative? Give, give our listeners a, a little short background on that and, and your updated thoughts on all that. Sure. So POV, price over volume, uh, was a Corbu theme uh, that emerged following the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And one of the things that we had noted um, and we're paying attention to uh, was the commentary from businesses around how they were handling the extraction or the inability to do business in Russia. How much was that going to affect corporate revenues and profits? That was that was one of the things we were paying attention to. And what we quickly realized was it wasn't significantly hurting anyone and that businesses were reacting to the invasion and cost pressures with raising prices and raising prices and not necessarily caring about how much it was taking away from their volumes, right? They were um, putting a sticker on a bag of chips. You know, Pepsi was our prime example. We'll get back to that in a minute. Pepsi was increasing prices and volumes were basically flat. And so Pepsi was increasing between 11 and 17% um, year over year and did that for a couple of years, right? Their last quarter saw an 11% uh, price increase over the past year with a 2.5% volume decrease. That, that to us was indicative of, one, a strong U.S. consumer, but two, the willingness and ability of businesses to defend and maintain their margins over time. The other thing that we realized pretty quickly was businesses didn't need volumes in order to pick up their margins over time. Price is a very, very cheap way of increasing revenues, right? You don't have to build additional capacity to make another bag of chips or another bottle of soda. All you have to do is change the price tag. And the, eventually, as you had supply chains normalize, as you had cost structures return to some sense of normality, that was gonna flow through to the bottom line in a very meaningful way. Um, and what we've seen over the past couple of quarters is really this transition from price over volume to defend margin to what we call PAM, uh, which is price and margin. 
and really that pricing begin to flow through to margins and to the bottom line. We think that's, again, going to be part of the story for the remainder of 2023 and well into 2024. Um, even, even if there's the inability to really push the pricing that we've seen over the past couple of years, you know, high single to, to low teens type numbers, even if there's the inability to do that type of pricing, they're still going to have significant margin benefits from the pricing that they've already done. And it's not as though they're going, you're likely to see prices fall. You're just likely to see prices begin to moderate their increase. And to that point, when Pepsi announced earnings, they made it very explicit that their typical inflation that they saw in their business was 2 to 3%. But next year, they were going to be raising prices more than that because that was the inflation they were seeing in the system. So when you have a company like Pepsi that shouldn't necessarily be able to raise prices, right? And they have a competitor called Coca-Cola that shouldn't be able to raise prices this aggressively you're still going to see 2024 likely in the mid single digits in terms of their pricing. So we think that is, again, a signal from at least some of the companies that have pricing power that they're really going to potentially over revenue and really, really uh, potentially over earn. And what, when, you, when the shift to prices and margins so this PAM narrative, What's driving the margin side? Um, is it as the the cost? What what type of costs are coming out of this system, or is it just that they're now the prices have gone up enough that their whole margin dynamics are are just better? So part of it is supply chains generally being better, right? Your shipping costs are down. Uh, you don't have to uh, call it double order your inputs or significantly over order your inputs in order to be able to have them. Uh, for production purposes. So supply chains in general, that's the first cost that's coming down. And for a lot of the, these consumer-facing companies, it's the input cost as well um, on the commodity front. Uh, so your potatoes or your oils or you know whatever your input is, is beginning to at least moderate in price. And a lot of them are commodities that over time tend to be pretty boring investments, right? You know, it's you know, not something like, um, you know, just pumping oil out of the ground or something like that, right? These tend to be, you know, fairly staid uh, type commodities in terms of their returns. Uh, so it's it's uh, supply chains, it's commodities, and it's labor costs moderating as well, right? A lot of these companies invested early in terms of their employees and raising wages, uh, and they're beginning to see the benefits of that, uh, call it way before GM and Ford ever will. As, as you think about Art, how you translate all some of that macro to the portfolio and, and how you're thinking about allocations for your themes, uh, we, we talked a, lo a little bit about your Return of the Allies theme, uh, sort of going to focus on allies in, in Asia and generally and in, in sort of ex-China as part of that. But how, let's talk about the U.S. a little bit from this inflationary view, but also just how you think about the U.S. markets. W what's the sense of the theme for how you position in the U.S. today? So the theme, the theme is that you want to be, you want to be much more concentrated on quality, and you want to be much more concentrated uh, within uh, the companies that are able to exploit both price and margin, which tends to come through uh, across quality metrics, not necessarily across uh, cap weightings. Uh, so that's that's really the way that we view. Uh, are investing in the U.S. is be long uh, quality uh, over uh, market cap. That's that's the first thing. The second thing is again, it goes back to us liking that two to five year type duration time frame. Uh, we do like we do like the companies that are doing significant payouts uh, at the moment uh, for a couple of reasons. One, those tend to be overweighted towards energy, and obviously, we we tend to have uh, a positive view of energy moving forward. Um, but overall, we attempt to be differentiated from benchmarks by quality uh, at the moment. Um, any other, in terms of the allies, you talked a little bit about uh, about that, but any other parts of the allies story that you want to highlight? I think there's two. 
two things longer term, and I don't think it's something to uh, at least commit a portfolio to at this time, but it is something that's been on our screen for a while, is the return of the allies is a significant, also includes a significant amount of investment from U.S. and other businesses um, into uh, countries that didn't necessarily get the type of investment that they did before. Uh, the first one is interesting is Intel announced a German plant and it's the largest foreign investment in Germany ever, right? You know, we talk a lot about German manufacturing. Is it dead? Is it not dead? You know, th there's a lot of these under the surface announcements that I think people need to pay attention to as we move through the next couple of years, right? We all know that Europe has not been the place to invest over the, call it the last 18, 24 months. But as we begin to move into this significant period of re-regionalization, as Intel and others begin to rethink where their manufacturing and production is, that is one, Europe in particular is an interesting place um, to consider, uh, mostly because it's out of favor, but also because U.S. businesses are beginning to heavily invest there. Well, Sam, I always love getting your view of what's happening around the world. So this has been a really fun conversation in the final 30 seconds. If people want to learn more about Corbu, um, you, you have all sorts of these views. How can people stay in touch? How can people learn about the model portfolios that you are collaborating with us on? Where, where can they find you and your research? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and at Samuel Rhines. At Samuel Rines, and you know, they, they, because they are a research firm, you don't get all that research just on Twitter. So you got to reach out to Sam to get access and see how it gets implemented into portfolios. But uh, a lot of great content that uh, I always enjoy getting Sam's notes a number a week, and then obviously he's managing portfolios tied to that. It's been a lot of fun, Sam. I wish you were here with me in NYC, but it was fun to do Corey in the studio here with me, uh, or me and Chris in Philadelphia. Have a great week. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast as well. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.